Off the top, BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver joins us. Then Global VC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Suns' Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw tackle a number of hot political topics, including the latest Site C revelations. For Kamloops Computer Center, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. It is a snowy, turning into a slushy day here in Kamloops. Uh, pleasure to be joined on the phone by the leader of the BC Green Party, Andrew Andrew Weaver. Mr. Weaver, are you there? Have we lost Andrew Weaver? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, all right. Uh, yeah, no worries. I got my heart rate up there for a moment. Uh, Andrew, off the top, uh, you made a you made a, uh, a quite a distinct criticism over the government over the so-called hydro rate freeze. You even invoked the no surprises part of the agreement between your party and the NDP. Uh, what has you so upset about this particular issue, and how far are you prepared to push it? So obviously, uh, you know these are just little hiccups on the on the way of a, uh, otherwise you had a productive uh, collaboration working together to advance good policy. So. You know what? What the criticism we had was, as as we as we were, uh, we thought, as did British Columbians, I'm I'm sure, think that rates would be frozen April first, 2018. At least that's essentially what that was the headline of the news release, as well as what the minister said in, in at the press scrum, and as well as, well as well as what was reported by all the news outlets. Well, it turns out when you actually dig through, this is what came out in our discussions during budget estimates, was that what is happened is the government allows BC Hydro to go to the BCUC to reverse the already approved 3% rate hike that would occur in April 2018. Uh, the problem there, of course, is, is that the British Columbia Utilities Commission is an independent agency. It is not, and, and so they, uh, they look like there's uh, you know, um, mud on their face if they're not doing due diligence to actually because they had approved a 3% rate increase based on the information put to them by BC Hydro. Now, if the government wanted to freeze rate increases, they could do what the BC Liberals do, what the BC NDP criticized the BC Liberals for doing, which is just do an order in council and demand that it be so. But they chose to follow the due process, and that's fine, and we support them on that. But due process means that rates aren't frozen. <laughs> so so that this... Is that you know? I think it's important that you be forthright with British Columbians, yeah. and we don't need spin. We need to be honest and forthright. All right. Uh, I know Michelle Mungal ended debate on that a little early. Uh, apparently, she's suffering some kind of a health issue. But uh, are you still going to uh, carry that banner and look for some kind of? I know you're looking for a press release to clarify. I mean, how do you want this resolution to find itself? Yeah. So, so what I pressed for, as as you know, I was working. It's, it was actually a very respectful debate in the legislature between the minister, uh, Mike Mike Bernier from Peace River South, Tracy Reddy's from Surrey Network, and, and me. The three of us were, were, you know, trying to get her to say that we made a mistake. Sorry, we'll just correct it. Let's move on. But but, they, but she wouldn't do that. She just doubled down in defense about how this is not misleading, and, and that's what what I found troubling. So I, I'm hoping that they'll clarify. So that the, I think actually, you know, the media's done an incredible job in clarifying because. You know, I just was able to clarify with you, and it's happened like that across the planet. So, so you know, they, they shouldn't do this again. Uh, it's, people are sick and tired of spin. Just be honest. Like, we'd support you on that. You know, you, you've gone to the, you respect the independence of the BCUC. You've instructed BC Hydro to go to BCUC. You don't know what the answer will be. You'll hope the answer will be uh, that they'll, they'll get the rate hikes to be reversed, but you don't know until BCUC rules. If you just said that, this, this would have been a, a five-hour news cycle. But, but instead, um, you know, we, we, we're all hoping that, that, that we don't do these things again. 
<laughs> uh, I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. But uh, let's move on to Site C because I know our timing's tight here. Uh, obviously, a very tough decision, according to the Premier. A big cost to the taxpayers, really, no matter which way this thing goes, as well as impacts on ratepayers. Uh, I know Michelle Mungall and Estimates basically admitted that uh, scrapping this thing could potentially cost a 10% rate hike. Uh, so, where do you? I know you're opposed to the dam, but do some of these facts and figures that are flying around about the various repercussions uh, impact or affect your stance? Well, here's, here's the problem. Uh, we, we, when we campaigned at the last election, we knew what was going to come in the BCUC report because anyone who's de- delved into this file will recognize that it's way over cost. It will be. It's some of the most expensive power you could produce. BC Hydro's estimates, load estimates, have been as the point uh, high for years. And, and, uh, and that this was all about trying to deliver power into a non-existent LNG industry. So I've been saying that for five years now. The problem is, is that the BCNDP in their campaign did not want to make the tough decision, so they wanted to go to BCUC. And that's fine, too. I respect that. But now we're, you know, now we're in a position where no matter what decision they make, 50% of British Columbians will be upset unless they decide to defer making a decision, in which case 100% of British Columbians will be upset. So, so <laughs> this is... No, let's not forget that this is absolute another example of reckless economics by the BC Liberals. The BC Liberals should never have done this. It was all about them trying to deliver the impossible. And, and, and what I find so remarkable is that the B, BC Liberals claim that they've been looking out for rural BC when it's precisely ridiculous kind of things like this and, and, and attempts to give LNG while missing out on the opportunities to bring tech together with the resource sector. It's exactly the opposite. So... So I, 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 you know, I feel for the NDP making the tough decision. The only right decision, of course, is to is, is to say no. Uh, it is the only decision that's economically. It's the least economically outrageous of the two decisions. And and let's not forget that it was the BC Liberals who 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 put us in this predicament as they were trying to you know deliver LNG, like squeeze water from a stone, and and and. It, where are we? There's no LNG because of market conditions, despite what they'll try to tell you. All right. Well, you've drawn a line in the sand, and no, uh, the government has yet to render a decision. But if they do decide to forge ahead, Andrew, and build this thing, uh, how will you and your party handle that? Would it, would it be as far as to impact the agreement relationship between yourselves or no? Well, so we, we, we have said, and I've said this publicly, the government will not fall because of the decision they make either. This is a, this is a, this is a cabinet decision. It is right, right now. We're informed by evidence. This is that they're entitled to make such decisions. Uh, we think that, that the obvious decision would be the one uh, to cancel. Uh, if they were the other, they're going to have to be held accountable by the voters or the ratepayers um, who for the decision that they make. So, so we'll let them wear that, and we will make sure that they're that you know we, uh, that this is the reminded of this decision as we move forward. However, it would be irresponsible for us to play petty politics to call a provincial election in February simply because the government had to make a difficult decision one way or the other on, on reckless economics by the BC Liberals. All right, that's pretty clear. I know you got to get into a meeting at uh, 9.15 here. Uh, you've been generous with your time. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Sean. BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver there on Site C in this uh, tiff over the so-called BC Hydro rate freezes. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. On the other side, Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. Time to bring in the political panel. Uh, pleasure to be joined on the phone now by Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. 
Uh, guys, I'm sure you listened into a bit of Andrew Weaver there. We'll sort of pick up that uh, BC Hydro storyline. Uh, Vaughn, Michelle Mungall, and Estimates dropping some interesting facts and figures in sort of a three-way question period there. Uh, I referenced it in the last segment, but uh, one of the more interesting is potential hydro rate increases of 10% for scrapping Site C. Yeah, exactly. So we're now getting numbers about Site C from the NDP. They're running BC Hydro, and they're running the Energy Ministry as well. So, you know, this is no longer stuff coming from the Liberals. This is the New Democrats. Uh, Mungal admits that if they cancel Site C, the write-off would be about $4 billion. Uh, Her number, not mine. Uh, She also conceded in the House that if that were simply rolled into rates, which if it's a write-off, you'd have to, uh, that's a 10% rate increase. You've canceled Site C, you've got a $4 billion write-off, and you've got a 10% rate increase nothing to show for it. We also got some job numbers from the NDP on Site C this week, Shane. And, uh, you know, if you say there's almost 2,400 people uh, working on Site C, you'll get complaints saying, oh, that's not true, the whole thing is shut down. But NDP numbers in September, 2,400 people employed at Site C. Yeah. Keith, uh, and if they keep building this thing, uh, there's the potential, according to the BCUC report, of uh, cost overruns uh, going over budget over time. Uh, it's increasingly looking like the NDP here between a rock and a hard place in this decision. Oh, yeah. No, it's a, it's a terribly difficult decision for them. Uh, they can uh, go the act- the activist route, the anti-Site C activist route, and, and kill it with one, says that results in an almost immediate 10% rate hike uh, next spring. Uh, so that's unpalatable. But going the other way means uh, building a mega project that is undoubtedly going to have uh, cost overruns, as pretty well every um, mega project does. There's very few projects that come in on time on budget, uh, particularly one of that uh, that proportion. So it could hit as high as twelve billion dollars. But again, NDB cabinet sitting around saying, "Okay, do we do we spend right off four billion dollars and have nothing to show for it and jack up rates ten ten percent or?" Do we build it over the next few years, incur uh, billions of dollars of more debt, uh, but at least have an asset, uh, energy-producing asset uh, down the road that uh, will inevitably cause rates to go up as well? But the rate increase with building Site C is lower because it's spread out over a greater period of time. It's over 70 years rather than the 10 years that a shutdown scenario would uh, would would. Envision. So it's a, you say it's a rock and a hard place. Damn it if you do, damn it if you don't. The usual cliche. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Mongol, Michelle Mongol, the energy minister, let slip an energy estimate that maybe they may have a decision by the end of November because uh, she was asked about extending the time frame for uh, an RFP, a request for proposal for a major part of the dam. She's extended it to November 30th, but she said in the House, oh, well, it may be a moot point because we may have the decision before then. What? We'll see. Yeah, the Premier did say they were going to struggle with it for the next few weeks. Uh, regardless on this thing, Rob, uh, these every day that passes, they're throwing money away on this thing. Uh, and although I guess on the plus side, as we heard from Andrew Weaver, uh, he's not prepared to pull the plug if the province decides to go ahead and build this thing. No, Andrew, Andrew Weaver's kind of backed off from that idea that uh, the NDP build Site C, if they see it through, that he would uh, you know bring the government down. That's not, he said he's not willing to do it on that. The NDP will wear that and It'll cause a big internal explosion within the party, anyway. So he can just sort of back off and let them and let them kind of do it. But uh, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, I think uh, Energy Minister Mungal did a pretty good job handling some of the questions that she she was posed on this file in, in question period this week. Vaughn 
wrote a fair bit about it. But mm. uh, the answers that are coming from the NDP are not probably the ones that uh, some of the activist uh, supporters want to hear. They want to hear, you know, a nonstop litany of problems and reasons why it can't go forward and, you know, uh, numbers that prove that case. And the New, New Democrats are in the uncomfortable position of repeating BC Hydro's numbers, numbers that... You know, when the Liberals gave them, people set their hair on fire, and now the now the NDP are giving them. So it's a it is a weird, um, you know, situation to watch the New Democrats start talking about Site C in a different way. Um, John, I, I think the other thing to keep in mind, you know, and I talked a, a fair bit uh, to Liberals about how they made their Site C decision, and one of the things you heard behind the scenes is, look, Cabinet is not really qualified to make a decision of this magnitude. Cabinet ministers are just people who get elected to ridings and then mm. are appointed to cabinet. They don't necessarily have the business or, you know, project management expertise to make an $8 billion decision. So the first thing you have to do is educate them on how to do project management, on how to analyze the biggest project in BC's history. And that's partly what's going on behind the scenes right now is a crash course in New Democrat cabinet ministers understanding how to even begin to grasp analyzing this thing and before they can make a decision. Yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, the other big issue in sightseeing, Keith, I know you brought it up when you uh, talked to the Premier at his weekly uh, media briefing, is the uh, the UNDRIP angle. Uh, if they decide to scrap the dam, it's going to fly in the face of the agreement of six First Nations who, who have agreements with BC Hydro, although I guess the reversal would also be true. If they build it, then uh, UNDRIP could also come into play for First Nations who are opposed. So Yeah, yeah. yeah this doesn't get a lot of attention. It really focuses on... Um, uh, on the on the anti site C position of two First Nations, and, and that's perfectly valid. But it it forgets that there are six First Nations who signed economic benefit agreements with the dam, who view this as extremely important, uh, much needed injection of uh, of money into their often impoverished uh, communities, and which would go south if the dam is cancelled. So I put it to Horgan. I mean, couldn't you argue that? He'd be violating the spirit of UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, uh, if you were to kill the dam, uh, because you're basically ruining six uh, agreements with First Nations. And he agreed, yeah, yeah, you can make that argument. Um, Then he proceeded to make precisely an opposite argument. But uh, he's cognizant that that is... That is a problem, that uh, you've got agreements with six First Nations of, we don't know how much money is involved. I would suspect it's tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars collectively for the for the six bands. Uh, there are two bands that are opposed. Scott Fraser, Indigenous Affairs Minister, is uh, and Michelle Mungal, I think she's going to be there as well uh, next week, are going to be up in the Peace River area uh, talking to First Nations. I don't know how much time they're going to spend with the bands that support Site C. I have a feeling they're going to spend most of their time with the bands, the, the two bands that don't support Site C. But I don't see how you square the values of UNDRIP with uh, canceling economic benefits agreements with six First Nations bands to appease the interest of two First Nations bands. But, uh, it's a, it's, again, it, it adds to the complexity of uh, the decision that the NDP is facing. Yeah, I talked to Mike Bernier, uh, the Peace River MLA up there, and he's concerned about that Mongol-Fraser trip, basically saying that uh, he's concerned that they're going to only talk to people opposed to the mine and kind of sit in that echo chamber line of thought as opposed to people who support it. Vaughn? I think I'll be fair to the government on this one, and I do think the New Democrats are going to consider all sides of this issue. Uh, All the rumblings, all the signs I see, from the Premier and from Mongol is that they're going to engage seriously on this because it's a tough decision. You know, Mongol got asked again in the House this week uh, 
like she's an activist in the past. Yeah. She opposed Site C. So how can you even sit at the cabinet table and make the decision? And I thought she gave a pretty good answer. She said, it is not going to be about my personal opinion. It is going to be us sitting down and weighing everything in front of us, and that's a tough decision. And I think the one thing I would say is all the signs so far, Shane, is that the government is going to give this every consideration. I don't think the New Democrats have made up their minds yet on what to do about this. But, of course, the B.C. Liberals putting out those pictures of Horgan, uh, Lana Papa, Michelle Mungal, George Heyman, uh, all sort of actively opposing Site C in the past, which, I mean, uh, Michelle Mungal might have said, okay, I'm going to take the personal equation out of it. We've got to judge this in a business case, et cetera. But if they deny it, if they scrap it, it's going to take about three seconds for accusations <laughs> of the fixes in to start flying. You're, you're right? suggesting people will play politics yeah. with the decision in this, Shane? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I am suggesting. <laughs> 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 but, They've shown a, an interesting, very ministers have shown an ability to park their activist ways at the side and govern like a cabinet minister. Uh, and, uh, you know, being in opposition so long enhances that activist uh, uh, side of them. But I think some ministers have made the transition so far. And you mentioned George Heyman. I've seen little evidence that George Heyman, who's an environment minister, is suddenly this activist, Greenpeace activist in the, in the, in the job. He's mm. behaving like and acting like and performing like a, a cabinet minister who's, you know, obviously got a point of view, but he's not out there at the barricades trying to shut things down, like people wanting a, an anti-fracking uh, review. Well, there's no sign that's coming from the government at any time at all. So David Eby, again, an activist uh, in, uh, in his past life, is behaving very well as an attorney general and justice minister. He's not, he's not being the activist, neither is Heyman. Uh, and Mungal, is, as Vaughn says, is trying to walk that fine line. She's, she's saying her personal views in the past are not going to play a role here. And until I see evidence otherwise, you've got you to gotta believe her. Uh, so we'll see if the, those activist views are shed at the time when they come to make this sort of a decision that we hope is sort of, um, sort of not cold-blooded, but certainly passionless and will rely on the science rather than on the activism. Yeah, Rob, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, you know, I guess I, my... I don't think people, a lot of people, um, you know, believe for whatever reason that government makes these decisions dispassionately. I, I spent a lot of time talking to Bill Bennett about the liberal decision on Site C, and I know people who oppose Site C think that it was a vanity project for Christy Clark. It was personally motivated. Bill Bennett is stupid, and he doesn't understand energy policy, and he's a shill for the mining industry. I mean, it goes on and on. People ascribe personal motives to these decisions. And when you talk to the Liberals about how they decided Site C, they say, well, look, we analyzed it, we looked at geothermal, it's not proven. Uh, You know, we looked at wind and solar, we wanted something stable, we wanted, uh, you know, something that would provide power for a long period of time as a backstop. Like, they have perfectly legitimate, well-thought-out business case reasons, but the critics make it personal. And that's the problem the NDP is going to have, is that they can do, sit there and do a, a, you know, a dispassionate business case analysis. And people are still going to ascribe personal motives to it, that Lana Popham, that um, El Mungal, that all these people are activists. So I, I don't think it's a, I think the NDP are going to get a real tough lesson here and that even when they do put the activism aside, people still make it personal. And they're not going to get a lot of credit for doing a dispassionate business case analysis of Site C. All right, uh, let's get caught up to the news at the bottom of the hour. We'll have a lot more with Keith, Rob, and Vaughn on Inside Politics right here on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. 
This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Welcome back. We're talking to Rob Shaw, Von Palmer, and Keith Baldry. I want to stick with BC Hydro for a second here, guys. We are talking about playing politics in the last segment, and it certainly looked like that's what the government did on this hydro rate freeze. You read the release, following through in a promise, the province is uh, doing a one-year rate freeze. However, you look into how the whole thing works, uh, and maybe not so much. Rob, what's going on here? Yeah, well, uh, Andrew Weaver raised this uh, already, but uh, essentially the NDP made this rate freeze sound like a done deal. They came out and announced that this thing was the 3% rate hike uh, in April 2018 was done and there was going to be 0% and, uh, you know, mission accomplished banner was unfurled. But uh, in actuality, the BCUC, the independent regulator, gets an application before that rate to be adjusted because Hydro needs its uh, its approval on rates and uh, it makes a decision. So it was a bit of an awkward uh, round of questioning on uh, Energy Minister Mungal in the House. Andrew Weaver got quite upset about it and said it was a surprise. Um, you know, I think that uh, fi- the financial question is really more interesting to me than the politics on this one because it's a $150 million hit to Hydro, and they yeah. could have given Hydro that money to make Hydro whole for it. basically what is its political interference on rates, and it didn't. It has uh, saddled Hydro with that bill. Hydro has to push it off into one of its rate-smoothing accounts, which is like, I use the analogy, it's, uh, it's like um, you know not having enough money to buy your groceries this week. So you put them on your credit card, and then you announce to everyone that you spent $0 on groceries. <laughs> well, you still, you still have to pay for it. It's in, a, it's in a deferral account. So that's all that the New Democrats have done here. It is ex- extremely similar to what the Liberals used to do on rates and Hydro. You push it off, you tell everyone that you're prudent fiscal management and your cost-cutting and your internal reviews will find this money later. And then many, many years down the road, we see this bulging deferral account and realize, oh, hydro is drowning in debt. Yeah, and it's already drowning in debt. It's got billions sitting in uh, those deferral accounts, even as the government launches a pretty uh, brisk fiscal review. Uh, Hydro's in a lot of financial trouble here, Vaughn. They are, and the picture that, again, Mungal painted in the House this week is of a company that's actually done a pretty good job of holding down operating costs. So when the Liberals won the last election, Hydro's operating costs is a big number, but it's a big company, $705 million a year. Well, for the most recent year for financial statements, so about the same time as the election, it's only up to $715 million a year. So that's like a 1.4% increase over four years. So, you know, it sounds to me like this is a company that is already holding down costs as best it can. Hydro has a huge amount of capital spending out there, not, not including Site C. It's going to be spending billions, but it has to do that because it's an old network of dams, as you know, Shane, and, and hydroelectric lines. All needs to be brought up to earthquake standards. So the sense you get is that a lot of the low-hanging fruit at Hydro have already been picked. I don't know how many savings they're going to find from this, uh, you know, to make this rate freeze work. Mm-hmm. And I think Weaver is right about one thing, which is if you really view the Utilities Commission as independent, the Utilities Commission might have some important questions to ask about this because they're the experts at reviewing hydro rates. Yeah, for sure. Uh, BC Utilities Commission, and, and as well, dealing with those billions in, uh, of debt, I mean, somebody's got to pay the piper on that front, site C aside, Keith. Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, we've all said Hydro's finances are, 
quite alarming with all these, I think, $6 billion in deferral accounts, $19 billion in debt. Uh, they have to refurnish, uh, refurbish their their massive amount of assets. And, uh, you know, it's uh, in terms of political interference here, both Andrew Weaver and Tracy Reddys, who's emerging as one of the best critics on the B.C. Liberal side, she's a rookie MLA from Surrey, White Rock, former hydro director and a, and a former banker, so she knows her financial stuff. And she points out, again, uh, if BCUC t- takes a step back and looks at this request for a rate freeze, it's it's likely they'd say, are you out of your mind? Uh, if, particularly if they cancel Site C, because the financial pressure on BC Hydro right now without the rate freeze is already extraordinary. And then to add another $150 million uh, in takeaway revenue, uh, the U- BCUC would logically say, no, this is this doesn't make any sense at all. So Weaver points out the only way the BCUC can do this is with political direction from the government, which is what the Liberals used to do all the time. I mean, you know, they've got, uh, that, certainly that was their modus operandi, but the, uh, Weaver's point is the NDP made precisely the, the opposite argument, saying they would never interfere with the BC Utilities Commission. It was independent, and its independence was sacrosanct, and they'd never violate it. And here they are just a few weeks on the job, and they're about to violate the independence of the BC Utilities Commission, which is why Weaver's trying to make a big deal of this. Yeah, absolutely. I want to change it up, and one of the more fascinating political stories of the week was this uh, argument uh, around Daryl Plekis, the Speaker of the House, drawing a line in the sand on this uh, name-calling, the Minister of Intimidation, etc., issuing a ruling that uh, we're not going to do this anymore, uh, which kind of set off a fur. There's obviously multiple layers here, one of them being the the hostility between the Speaker and the BC Liberals, and the other being uh, the ruling itself and how the House conducts itself. Uh, Rob, what did you make of all this, and and how do you kind of peel back this onion to kind of see how how it's going to play out? Yeah, I'd add, you know, another layer is the performance of the Speaker himself and his kind of unilateral uh, dictation of this, but uh, essentially, I don't think anyone questions the authority of the speaker to change, you know, the rules of the house and to set parliamentary language. It's totally within that person's purview. The problem is in this case that uh, Speaker Plekis, who's been an MLA for five years, didn't ask anyone about it. He didn't talk to the Liberals. He didn't talk to the NDP. He didn't call the House leaders in. He didn't talk to the Greens. He just did it. And, uh, you know, the concern that the Liberals have is this technique of making up names for ministers is one of the verbal jousting tools that the New Democrats used against them when they were in government. The minister of hot air was something Andrew Weaver called Rich Coleman, and the minister of propaganda was something John Horgan uh, called Andrew Wilkinson. And so suddenly change it is uh, unfair in the Liberals' mind, and they don't understand why they weren't consulted on it. Uh, So it's a bit of... uh, undercurrent is clearly the tension and dislike from the Liberals on Daryl Plekis for defecting to take the Speaker's job. But there's also a bit of hubris from the new Speaker with five years on the job telling MLAs who've spent three or four times the amount of years in the House what he's going to do, mm-hmm. even asking them. And that seems to be the real rub uh, for Mike DeYoung and some of the Liberals. Well, Vaughn, uh, on this hostility, and we've talked about it on this show before between Mr. Plekis and the Liberals, uh, I mean, how does this thing come to an end? Does it still just bubble away in FOMA? How does that impact the House? How's it going to play out? Well, 
Fleckus needs to exercise better judgment and be more even-handed, in my view. If he, if he, he should just let this thing slide, go to the new year. Next time the House sits, uh, the Liberals will have a new leader, and there's a chance to turn the page there. I, I, you know, I hear from people that they don't like the name-calling, and yet I think about some of the... There's an art to it, right? Remember Stone Wally? You know, Wally Opel was Attorney General, and he was refusing to answer questions about any number of things because it was before the courts. And the New Democrats came up with calling him Stonewally. It actually said a fair amount about the issue. So there is an art to it. Um, the other thing I have to say, Shane, is we've had two question periods this week under the new no name calling rules, so Wednesday afternoon and Thursday morning, and the place was as chaotic as ever. <laughs> Heckling, you couldn't hear anything. Both sides are out of control in terms of that. So you didn't have any name calling, but it was as bad as ever. So anybody who thought this was going to improve the mood in the house must be sorely disappointed so far. I, I've never seen it this bad on a sustained basis. Uh, it's been going on for weeks now where. The din during and this is really the only question period. We're not talking about the other hours of the House right. and people, people who comment on this on Twitter have no idea because they have no idea how the legislature actually works. Ninety percent of the time is spent with relatively pretty calm uh, debate and question and answer back and forth about spending estimates or about uh, the minutia of a piece of legislation. So we're talking about the thirty minutes that occurs every day in question period which is where everybody goes into the house, unlike any other time, and it's almost 100% attendance, and it's, uh, it's theater. And it's, uh, both sides have uh, di- you know, different aims and goals of what to accomplish in question period. And so it's now descended into complete chaos, where you've got both... It, it, yesterday it was extraordinary, where John Horgan was screaming at the B.C. Liberals, uh, and the Liberals were yelling back at him, but the NDP was yelling at the Liberals. So the NDP was actually drowning out their own leader because they were trying to yell at the at the Liberals. It's an extraordinary situation. Uh, it's not accomplishing a heck of a lot, but uh, it's not the end of democracy because this is going on. And it's uh, it doesn't mean the, the legislature is dysfunctional. It just means question period right now is probably dysfunctional for that 30 minutes, and it's reflected that the Speaker really doesn't have a handle on things. Says one side won't uh, give him the respect and, uh, and uh, won't defer to him, and that causes the other side, the NDP, to tumble into this sort of chaotic nature as well. So uh, I think Vaughn's right. We've got to get to the next session with a new leader on the Liberal side. Plackers has to call the, the, the House leaders from all the parties in and say, let's, let's try to make this work and begin again in February. But I, I don't hold much hope for the end of this, for the rest of this session, as long as it runs, to have any calm being restored and much order being restored before it ends. Just real quickly here before we head to the commercial break, I'm just curious here from the three of you on this, is is there any scenario here where, where Daryl Plekis kind of loses control or confidence of the House, and, and if so, are there any options on the table there, or, we, or we're, he's just in that position until mm, whatever? Well, a thing could escalate. You know, if the Speaker really wants to push this issue, uh, you could get to the point where members are being thrown out. I don't think the Liberals would see themselves ejected from the House for the right to call names. I think what you're going to see from the Liberals is perhaps a more artful way of handling it. So instead of referring to a minister as the Minister of Intimidation, they might say, why is the minister so busy intimidating people that are complaining to her? Mm-hmm. There, there are ways around this. Mike Farmworth was actually pretty good on it, uh, Shane, because he's 
you know, 10 years in in government in the 90s and, and 12 years in opposition before this election. So, you know, he said that. He said there are clever ways around this sort of thing, and it pretty much hinted to the Liberals that's what they should do. So, you know, only if the Speaker persists in this course of action and continues to be as one-sided as he's been, uh, I could see a blow-up, but I think he's right, I think more likely what you'll see is uh, there's a couple of weeks, uh, maybe less than the session, and then a fresh start in the new year. Rob? Uh, I could see the Liberals wanting to get thrown out, not on, not on the name issue. I think they, they'll pick a different fight in the new year, uh, something important, you know, like being able to ask questions on a subject they're not technically allowed to ask about at a certain time, and fight with Plekis and get someone get thrown out and make it a, make it a thing, but certainly this issue of name calling is not one that the liberals, you know, there's no, there's so little public support for that idea. That, uh, but I, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. As long as the speaker doesn't talk to the other side, as long as he rules from the clouds uh, with his very limited experience, he's going to infuriate subtly almost everyone, and uh, the liberals will take advantage of that at some point, but not on not on this issue. Uh, last word to you, Keith. Well, it goes beyond name-calling. It's, uh, it's just the general tenor of the House. Uh, Rob's made this point on Twitter. It's, uh, you know, I think the, the, the name-calling maybe has been five lines uh, through the entire session. It's been five times where we've sort of affixed this funny moniker to, to cabinet ministers. Uh, that's a tiny, tiny part of question period and what's been going on. It is basically chaos in there, and they're ignoring... Plekis, he can't he can't hold order, and uh, I agree with Rob. It's it's not going to change. Uh, this session's a write off in terms of question period being a calm uh, place. Not that question period ever was really a calm place, but uh, I don't see this ending until we get a new leader on the Liberals and uh, both sides get off their training wheels and come back in the House in February. <laughs> I like that quote. All right, uh, let's take a quick break here, get uh, caught up uh, with some commercials, and then on the other side, uh, we'll finish off with Rob uh, and uh, Vaughn and Keith right here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Thank you for listening. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Uh, guys, when Horgan was in opposition, he got stuck with that angry John sort of label. Since Premier, I think he's kind of relished the role, and we haven't seen much of that. But in this week's uh, media briefing, when he got uh, repeatedly questioned by Les Lane about when in the world they're going to call a by-election in West Kelowna, the seat vacated by Christy Clark, a little bit of that angry John came out, Vaughn. Yes. <laughs> he doesn't have time. He's incredibly busy. And the cheeky Les Lane said, all you have to do is sign a cabinet order. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's all you do. Trudeau found time to sign a cabinet order for the by-election to fill Diane Watt's seat in Surrey. Yeah, that seat will be filled by Christmas, right? So what's the holdup? Well, I think what we're seeing here, Shane, is Oregon and the New Democrats like the vacancy because it makes it easier for them to manage the House. It's one less liberal to vote against them. Yeah, it's all about the math, isn't it, Keith? It is. And, uh, and you know, it's interesting talking to him. Uh, the House Leader Mike Farnworth yesterday asking him whether um, he could call the, set, the House back in the session a little earlier than usual, and whether or not they could get past both a budget vote and a throne speech vote before the end of February or, or mid-March, is, which is when the, is the you know, end point of which uh, that, that seat has to be filled. 
And he just sort of smiled and didn't deny that's what he's thinking. So I think what's at play here is they're going to not call that by-election until the last possible moment, which means when the House comes back in February, uh, the, the, the election has to be held before the end of February. But then uh, it takes two weeks for the writs to be returned. So it's conceivable that seat won't be filled till March, mid-March. And by that time, the Liberals will be able to pass their budget and pass their throne speech, hold their confidence votes. If they lose either one, the government falls. And this just gives them breathing room. And Horgan you know, said, you know, you can, you can make your own assumption of what's going on here. And I think that was basically an acknowledgement. That's exactly what they're doing. But it was the first time since the election since actually the election campaign, since his moment with Christy Clark in the radio debate, that I've seen John Horgan not lose his cool, but be a little testy and yeah. a little crabby when being pressed about something. And, uh, and Les sort of called him out on that, and it was the emergence of uh, the old John Horgan. I don't think we're going to see that very often going forward. Hopefully not, but it's an indication that uh, below the surface is always ticking something that you don't see all the time publicly. And, uh, of course, uh, when they do hold a by-election, I wonder if the delay will kind of be a little bit of a poison pill for whomever the NDP put in that riding. Not that they've had a lot of success, a lot of success there in the past, Rob. No, they don't, I don't think they have that much of a hope there. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, again, it goes back to that issue of, of hypocrisy, I guess, which is, in uh, Les's column, he certainly hit on it. You know, when, the, when Christy Clark took her sweet time to call by-elections in the... Uh, in the, the downtown east side and in uh, Coquitlam uh, a few years ago. I mean, the NDP were irate. This is about, uh, you know, a premier who's delaying democracy and, uh, you know, leaving constituents without representation for her own political machinations. Well, I mean, that's exactly what's going on here, too, right? And so there's, there is that element to it where the NDP have to weather that fact. And, you know, Les also brought up the point that this leaves the the constituents of uh, of West Kelowna without a voice yeah. during a time in which we're debating changing the electoral system and proportional representation. No one is speaking on their behalf in the House on that bill, uh, and so that's a bit of an issue as well. But the New Democrats don't frankly care about that. I don't think they anticipate winning this riding. This is just them, for political reasons, holding off on calling that by-election for as long as they can. And losing the moral high ground on the issue of by-elections instantly, which I guess uh, I guess they don't really care about. Uh, we got a few minutes left here. Let's quickly touch on ICBC's move this week, uh, the insurance premium on repeat distracted driving offenders. Uh, I mentioned in the show rundown I sent out to you guys that maybe the first release I've seen on an initiative that's touted as saving lives that actually highlighted how many millions of dollars in revenue it will raise uh-huh. and how that will offset ICBC's bottom line, Keith. Uh, distracted driving is the big, one of the big problems facing ICBC and facing everybody. I mean, the, the number one increase in accidents is uh, uh, rear-end collisions, which is basically people being on their phones and devices with their heads down and slamming into the car in front of them. Uh, it's, uh, I've, I've been involved in one of those where somebody just, thankfully it wasn't a big collision, but somebody just tapped me from behind. And I looked behind, and they were sheepish, but they were, had been on their phone. And so this is the biggest increase uh, in claims for ICBC. They have to get their, their heads around it. Ontario is taking more, even more aggressive action than, than we are. But uh, this is a first step. And David Eby, the minister responsible, says it's not necessarily the last one. They're going to see how this goes, you know, you know making it something like a $2,000 fine if you've got a couple of infractions within three years, which is pretty onerous for people. Uh, and it's attached to your insurance. So it's uh, the financial implications for distracted driving are starting to become very serious. 
but uh, I think it's uh, it's needed action because, as I say, I don't. Every day I see someone on their yep. phone driving, and it's just like, oh my god, it's a it's a disaster waiting to happen. And people haven't quite got their their minds around the fact that, unlike impaired driving, which is for ninety nine percent of the population, is like, okay, that's a no brainer. I'm not going to get behind the wheel. Uh, but so many people just don't equate distracted driving with impaired driving. That's one of the goals of David Eby and, and ICBC now is to make that parallel very, very apparent to people. Yeah, one small part of a very large problem at ICBC, and uh, David Eby promising some major changes there, Vaughn, to address the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, I really hope he can make this work, and I hope that the experiment they're trying with this lockout system that's being developed with TELUS uh, works as well. Uh, you know, it's a it's a technological revolution we've had, and <clears throat> people still think yeah, they get addicted to their email, and we all do, and people think you can multitask, and you can't. And, uh, I mean, the, the numbers on this thing, I, one of the numbers that jumped out at me, and Keith mentioned some of these numbers, like 12,000 people have been caught twice. Mm-hmm. Like, you know when you go out on the highway how often you see a cop pulling people over. So they, they've already caught a bunch of us doing this twice, and you know how dangerous it is. So on this one, I, the, the strong measures from the government make sense, and I really, really hope it works. Tall task at ICBC, Rob? Yeah, my, my taste on this is slightly different. I think the New Democrats are paving the ground for a massive rate hike. There is very few options available to them that are, aren't going to result in your insurance dramatically changing uh, under their review of ICBC, whether we go to no fault or capping or whatever. Your rates are going up. And one of the initial reactions they've heard clearly is, people's uh, anger that their rates might increase without ICBC cracking down on the worst drivers. And so you're going to see this, you're going to see the point system changed, you're going to see probably another change to IRPs or drunk driving, because David Eby has to show first, gone after the worst drivers, and then brace for impact, because, uh, I mean, your insurance rates are going up dramatically, and your insurance system is going to change dramatically. That's the only path forward on ICBC. The reports there have been very clear. So first he's going after the scoff laws and then get ready. All right. Uh, we're out of time, but gentlemen, thank <laughs> Sorry, what did you say, Keith, there? Scoff laws. We haven't heard that phrase. Yeah. That's a good one. Everyone's Googling right now. Uh, gentlemen, we're taking a break on the show next week, but I look forward to talking to you again in two weeks' time. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. There's Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Rob Shaw. Always appreciate what they have to say uh, every, each and every week. Uh, thanks to them and to Andrew Weaver for being on the show today. Again, no show next week. We'll see you on uh, the week after that, two weeks' time here on Inside Politics on Radio Now. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL, 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com.